Well, we have yet another psalm of encouragement, uh, Psalm 12, to the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, the Psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Amen. Father, we know your word is true. It is pure. It is something we can lean upon with absolute assurance. And I pray that as your word is preached this morning, you would quicken it to our hearts. You would be glorified through our responses. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tomorrow is uh, Reformation Day, a day in which we remember how a hopelessly corrupt Europe was transformed by the gospel. And I use the word hopelessly because there were many in that day who thought that the events were totally hopeless. Now, the Reformers did not, but there were many naysayers who couldn't believe they were even trying to bring about Reformation because it was too dangerous. It was impossible. Many have tried before, and actually some had died trying before. Don't do this. Uh, it's not uh, a good thing. Things were so bad in the 16th century that many claimed that their discouraging times were a sign that the world was at an end. <laughs> uh, we've heard that many times since then, haven't we? Immorality, graft, other forms of corruption were pervasive in the church, and even the Pope hosted orgy parties with prostitutes. It was a crazy, crazy time. Um, mercantilism, a status form of economics, uh, suffocated the economies of uh, European countries. Crime was high. Politics in most European countries was tyrannical. And there were so many discouraging things that many Christians had been robbed of their hope and faith. They were very, very discouraged. But there was a remnant that believed God's word called for a pervasive change, and therefore a pervasive change was possible. And they were not going to settle for anything less than what God's word called for. And a reformation was spawned by a remnant who had faith that God's grace can do the impossible, and so they attempted the impossible. It brings tears to my eyes every time I read about um, uh, Gustavus Adolphus, the king of Sweden. This was a man of incredible faith. I don't know, if you, you really do need to read about this guy. He called every day his nation and his soldiers to attempt impossible things by faith, and he himself was able to accomplish things that nobody thought was possible. But he had faith in God, and, you know, he'd get the horse blown underneath him, and he was covered with blood, and he'd get up and say, well, I guess it's not my day to die yet. God's in control. <laughs> and he would go on and continue to fight. He, he was an amazing, amazing guy. And God is raising up a remnant today, believe it or not, with the faith of King Gustavus. 
Uh, you know some of the big names who are out there. Uh, they're very famous, but there are a lot of unknown names, uh, including people in this congregation, who have a faith that God can indeed uh, do the impossible. After California legalized the killing of babies that were already born, uh, Jim Dennison responded to the hopelessness of some people were experiencing by writing an article that was this past March. And, and it's titled, It Takes Faith to Make a Difference in Discouraging Times. And I'm just going to quote one paragraph. He said, One of my mentors, John Edmund Haggai, often encouraged those he led to attempt something for God so great it is doomed to failure unless God be in it. Seeking a moral reformation in a culture that has abandoned biblical morality certainly qualifies. And I say amen. Uh, California definitely needs a lot of people of faith uh, like uh, him because most Christians have bailed. Actually, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Steve Walker from our sister church in California said over the last year they've lost more than 100 members. It's just people fleeing the tyranny in California. And you can certainly understand why they would, uh, why they would do that. So what are the impossibilities that we face today? Psalm 12 encourages us to identify them and then to defy them by God's grace. The same David who defied Goliath not too much earlier than this psalm was written has now found new Goliaths that uh, has been embedded in the Israelite culture. And these Goliaths uh, were evidence that Israel itself desperately needed reformation. But David did not identify these Goliaths in order to discourage his people. He identified those Goliaths to ask God to help him to take those Goliaths on. In other words, he was committed to act in faith. He was not going to bail. And we have plenty of Goliaths today. Is it impossible to make abortion illegal? Well, sure, from man's perspective. Is it impossible to have integrity in the media, justice in the courts, honesty in politics, to make Christian counties out of pagan counties? Well, yes, it is impossible. But how we identify these Goliaths makes the difference between hopelessness and faith. And I would encourage each one of us to fight against this tendency, and I have this tendency too, but fight against this tendency to give into attitudes of unbelief, what Steve Walker two weeks ago called liturgies of unbelief, and to replace them with liturgies of belief. And what he meant by liturgies of belief or faith is putting on words of faith and actions of faith and encouragements of faith and prayers of faith and songs of faith. He said we've got to, in our daily life, have liturgies of faith. Now, there's a lot that's been happening in our lifetime that could easily rob us of faith if we allowed it to. Just consider the church at large. Liberalism, moral compromise, and a truncated worldview are just three of many, many uh, issues in the modern church that are problematic. We live in a time of downgrade, but it is absolutely important that we not allow the downgrade of the church to rob us of a faith that Jesus Christ is victorious. He loves to advance his kingdom even through weak people like David. 
Refuse to be robbed of faith in Christ's victory. Another thing that can rob us of faith is how pervasive the woke movement and cancel culture has become. It's really hard to be salt and light on social media without getting canceled in some way. How many times have my posts been scrubbed from Facebook because they're not politically correct? Actually, recently I've been noticing they haven't been scrubbing. So what's going on? So maybe there's been enough pushback. They've stopped doing that. I'm not sure. Um, PayPal has been in the news, but it's just the tip of the iceberg of the kind of persecution cancel culture likes to bring. And if you aren't familiar with the PayPal fiasco, I'll just fill you in here. Three weeks ago, on October 8, they put a clause into their user agreement that reads as follows. It prohibits, quote, the sending, posting, or publication of any messages, content, or materials that present a risk to user safety or well-being or contain misinformation. And it went on to uh, say that what counts as misinformation is at the sole discretion of PayPal to define. Uh, PayPal could deduct $2,500 per infraction for uh, you violating their, their statement. And I, I'm thinking to myself, what they define as misinformation, man, I'd have a ton of money taken out of my account. Uh, well, they got such blowback from left and right that they issued an apology saying, no, no, that was not supposed to get into the policy. And so they removed the word misinformation. It's too nebulous, they said. But even after they removed the word misinformation, they've retained the ability to find people for things they consider intolerance or discrimination. Again, at their, and, and you'll see these, these posts up there that say, oh no, it's misinformation to say they've reinstated it. Well, just read the whole article because it says they're just continuing the policy they had since 2021. Now thankfully, this may be a Goliath that is ready to fall as eight or so uh, more emerging alternatives to PayPal like Gab uh, Pay, another of Andrew Torba's attempts to add to the parallel economy begin to come uh, along. He refuses to become hopeless. I really like his attitude. Okay, he's developing an alternative economy to replace the cancel culture giants. What are some other Goliaths? State surveillance. I hate this one. It is so contrary to the spirit of early America. Uh, last month, September 11, was Patriot Day. It's um, a, a day to remember the terrorist attacks in uh, September 11 of 2001, but calling the day Patriot Day now seems like a mockery to the word patriot because that was when they began doing this massive surveillance of every citizen in the United States. Okay, it was uh, something that would make our early American patriots roll over in their grave. Well, actually, more likely, they, they're not going to roll over. They're going to fight. They're going to resist, right, uh, if they were alive. But uh, the question is, do we have faith? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Another Goliath that may well come crumbling down soon is all of the unconstitutional agencies that write most American laws. And you might think, ah, oh, that is absolutely hopeless. Well, I've actually been encouraged, I am heartened, that at least three, but more likely, five of our Supreme Court justices believe that the non-delegation doctrine is the true interpretation, original interpretation, of uh, our Constitution's um, Article 1, Section 1, which says this, 
All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. Now, we'll skip over the nature of, of um, uh, herein granted, which is also ignored, and just comment on that phrase, uh, shall be vested, which means cannot be delegated. And there's plenty of interpretations of the people, very people who wrote the Constitution, that this meant Congress could not delegate any legislative powers to the executive office, to the, the courts, could not delegate it to boards or agencies. They had to personally handle it because they knew if they were allowed to delegate, you know, if they have to handle it, there's only so much they can handle, right? And so it would limit government. Well, um, Justice Kagan admits that if the non-delegation doctrine that was in place all the way up until 1935, if that is true, she says the vast majority of what federal government is doing now is grossly unconstitutional. She doesn't like that conclusion, but I agree. It is unconstitutional. And here's five potential justices, if a case comes up to them, that could immediately nullify everything that's been happening since 1935. And the Supreme Court shut down all of these agencies. Will it happen? Who knows? Uh, of course, the Constitution's violated left and right on many other issues besides this. But Psalm 12 is a passage that calls us to have faith that nothing, nothing, nothing is impossible with God. That's why David brings these blasphemous Goliaths before God's throne. He's willing to take them on, and he is petitioning God for his grace. <clears throat> Whether you're facing the discrimination of big banks against anyone even remotely connected with Second Amendment issues, government schools pushing LGBTQ plus issues onto kids, state taxation, medical tyranny, media bias, entertainment propaganda, reverse racism, rise of moms being abandoned to single-parent homes, imposition of 112 genders upon the population, political cheating. I mean, there's just any number of Goliaths out there. This psalm encourages us, yes, identify them, but don't identify them to be discouraged. Identify them to take them on by faith and present them before the Lord. And I'm actually beginning to systematically bring imprecations against these Goliaths. We live in times described by verse 8. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. I think that is a perfect description of America. Not only has evil multiplied... But vile things like homosexuality are being exalted, not just tolerated, exalted in this nation. Okay, enough by way of introduction. Let's dig into this psalm. And we're going to start with the five Goliaths that David will petition God about. And we can take this as a cue that we need to identify our own modern Goliaths. The first Goliath that was discouraging, very discouraging, was the church's utter failure to be salt and light. That was in David's day. Utter failure to be salt and light. Verse 1 says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Now, we're not told how they disappeared. It could be a lot of them fled the country just like David fled. I believe this psalm was written while David was fleeing uh, from King Saul. Some may have gone underground. Some may have just uh, become silenced 
by intimidation, and you can see why, because if you read 1 Samuel 22, you will see that Saul began engaging in all kinds of tyranny, including killing in one day 85 preachers for standing for righteousness. Now, whatever the cause was, David was extremely troubled with the loss of this godly influence. Where was everybody? Why am I the only one who was standing up against these Goliaths, he is saying? We have a similar problem in America. Where are those who do not covet their neighbor's wife through pornography? Or who do not covet their neighbor's automobiles or their houses by wanting to keep up with the Joneses? The Tenth Commandment is violated routinely. Where are those who never break their promises or whose word can always be trusted? Many Christians don't even keep their signed contracts, let alone the promises that they made to their families. And so we may have Goliaths in our own heart that need to fall. <clears throat> I don't think the Ten Commandments are being kept in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we might think, well, what about the First Commandment? You know, the church, they're monotheists. Uh, we don't uh, have any other gods before us. Well, don't be so sure, because when you read God's exposition of the first commandment, which is Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 11, by the way, uh, Deuteronomy takes every one of the commandments of God, and in the order it's given, devotes some chapters to those and says, here's the meaning of it, here's the applications in the, which God considers those commandments to be violated. And if you look at chapters 6 through 11 of Deuteronomy, those chapters show that the church violates the first commandment left and right by looking to sources of law other than God, other than the Bible. And the source of your law is your God, by definition. Okay? The source of your law is the highest authority in your worldview. And so you have another God. And so when Senator Ben Sass, bless his heart, he is a Christian, but when Senator Ben Sass, as a radical two-kingdom advocate, explicitly rejects applying God's laws in civics, he has, without realizing it, broken the first commandment. Deuteronomy 6 through 11 goes on to identify embracing secular education as being a violation of this first commandment. You may not have realized that, but he says when you are not taking God's wisdom, you're automatically going to something else for wisdom. When you're not applying the wisdom of his scripture 24 hours a day, when you sleep, when you rise up, when you walk by the way, when you sit, to everything that you do, you have violated the first commandment. We need Christian education, but Christians routinely send their kids to government schools. It goes on to say, treating the state as Messiah violates the first commandment. So is failing to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now those aren't the only ways that should make us, and the only things that should make us cry out, help Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Our nation and even the church of Jesus Christ has become callous to the flow of blood in our nation. I don't know how accurate the Pew polls are, but in two studies done in June and July of this year, they found that 61% of Americans believe in abortion on demand in, it should be legal for all cases or at least most cases. 61%, that is stunning. That is absolutely stunning. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this since Americans, for the most part, have been propagandized in the government schools for most of my uh, lifetime. 
The same Pew poll said that the more education people have, the higher their disposition to agree with abortion, with 66% of college graduates agreeing with abortion on demand. Now, what was saddest to me, though, was this Pew poll showed how many people in the church believe in abortion. The lowest statistic was of white evangelicals, and it said of white evangelicals, only 24% supported abortion in most cases. Now, there shouldn't be any evangelicals who support abortion. Supporting murder is basically what it is. But 24%, I mean, it is just hideous. It's much higher among non-white evangelicals, and all other Christian groups range from 60% supportive to 84% supportive. These are so-called Christians. Now, when you read statistics like that, it can either drive you to despair or it can drive you to prayer. And faith does the latter. It always does the latter. When the church is in desperate need of reformation and revival, we must turn to the Lord. And those who join with us in prayer, uh, prayer meetings are every Monday noon, every Wednesday evening, once a month, men gather for prayer, prayer breakfast on Thursday morning. Basically, what we are doing is we are, in these prayers, we are defying the giants of the land in the name of the Lord, and we're taking our stand by faith, and we invite you to join with us on that. We're actually starting an uh, imprecatory prayer network. It will be a private, by invitation only network, and we're starting to sling some pretty hefty stones at various Goliaths. Uh, we're still in process of identifying all of the Goliaths, but across this nation, there is a network that's doing this. Now, the second thing that drove David to prayer was a lack of integrity in men's words. Verse 2 says, They speak idly, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. David was quite frustrated with leaders who had doublespeak and flattery and lack of integrity. He didn't know who in the world he could trust. If you want to visualize the sad state of a country and the dangerous state of a country that no longer says what it means, I would encourage you to read the classic book by George Orwell titled 1984. Integrity of words is absolutely essential for a stable country. My parents drilled into me from the time I was a little boy. Your word needs to be as good as gold. Proverbs 15, verse 4, defines a godly man as one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, when he makes a promise, he's going to follow through on this promise, no matter how much difficulty that might bring to him. There is no such moral base in our country. Presidents do not keep their word. Congressmen break their promises almost as soon as they get into office. Even Christian politicians often perjure themselves by voting pragmatically rather than constitutionally as they have taken an oath to do. But the question is, are we any better in the church? Remember that God says judgment begins in the house of God, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Do you bail from your promises and commitments as soon as it gets tough to keep them? If the godly do not have absolute integrity of lips, how on earth can we expect the society to? Pray that words and promises will mean what they say in our nation. By the way, if you want to see a very interesting analysis of how our uh, even language has changed in this regard, 
compare Noah Webster's American Dictionary of the English Language of 1828 with almost any modern dictionary, and you will see there has been a very deliberate attempt to remove all theological basis for our definitions and our words in, in the Christian mind. It's just shocking. And it's actually gotten much worse than more recent uh, dictionaries, such as the New Heritage Dictionary, which just defines things in terms of modern political correctness. The language of a country is very serious, and it ought to grieve us, so grieve us that we cry out to God for the reformation of the church and society. Any society that lacks integrity in words will fast lose its ability to compete. Contract law was one of the things that made our nation great. <clears throat> but contract law is meaningless without integrity of speech on the individual level, without a court system willing to back up integrity of speech. And there are many other issues that could make you give up. Rather than letting it drive you to despair, let it drive you to prayer. This is yet another Goliath that can be taken on by the power of Jehovah. Okay? You can't change people's hearts. You can't create integrity. But God can. That's the point of prayer. And God loves to use little insignificant Davids to slay his Goliaths. Now related to this is point C. The third thing that drove David to prayer was the humanistic concept of freedom of speech in verse 4. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? I mean, that's a perfect description of the present day ranting and raving about no restrictions to freedom of speech, except that they're not consistent because they don't want us to have freedom of speech to say what God's Word has to say, because they say that's intolerant, right? That's intolerant. Uh, you got uh, f bakers and florists, and you've got photographers who have been fined huge fines for saying, well, we would rather not take your business uh, because we don't want to have our art justifying homosexuality. Well, that's outrageous. That kind of freedom of speech can't be tolerated. I got a kick out of the graffiti photographed in your outline. It's the third one from the bottom. Uh, someone painted on the wall, spread anarchy. And someone was offended by that, crossed it out and said, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I mean, it's symbolic of the irrational conflicts that we are seeing in our society. I have seen the freedom of speech argument used to justify child pornography in the government schools. They use freedom of speech to justify getting kids just entering puberty to cut off body parts because they have temporarily wanted to be a different gender. But any of the modern defenses of pornography could have these same words on their lips. With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? Nobody can tell me what to say, or what I can say or can't say, you know, I'm the master of my tongue, that's what they're saying. And today we have the sad situation where only the smallest vestiges of God's Lordship in this area are being enforced, and that's in the area of slander and libel. But logically, the total free speech advocates are demanding they be able to say anything they want to say and print anything they want, even slander and libel. Uh, George Grant has written a probing analysis of the suicidal positions that the ACLU has taken on this and other areas. It's titled Trial and Error. And that book illustrates the first part of this verse, with our tongue we will prevail. They don't just want freedom of speech for them. They want to prevail against any restrictions God puts upon our society. Well, that didn't start with the ACLU. It started 
here. Actually, it was before here. It goes all the way back to Tower of Babel and before, right? And yet, God changed that very, very quickly under David once David uh, became king. There's nothing new under the sun, and if God could defeat it back then, he can defeat it now. So don't get discouraged by the Goliaths in the land. The fourth Goliath that David defies in this psalm was oppression of the helpless. David not only models help for the helpless, but he goes to God for help to change a culture that wasn't prone to care. Look at verse 5. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Now, we aren't told who are the poor that were oppressed or who the needy were. David had witnessed Saul stealing land from people. I mean, that's horrible. And killing 85 uh, preachers in one day and taxing people mercilessly and disarming the citizenry. It, it was pretty bad. Even Samuel was afraid to travel. He complained to the Lord, what if Saul finds out? So freedom of travel, freedom of assembly... Uh, apparently was restricted to some degree. The people trembled when Samuel came. They're intimidated into silence. And yet this passage indicates that God was at work. Now I will arise, says the Lord. God was preparing the way even while David was fleeing from Saul. And get this. Here's how he was preparing the way. God was preparing the way by allowing tyranny allowing evil to triumph so that people would grow to hate it and be ready for the sacrifices of true liberty. Why does God allow evil to triumph? I believe it's because citizens don't hate evil enough yet. They need to experience its raw side. This is what Romans 1 talks about, is giving them up unto a depraved mind, withdrawing his hand, making them sit in their poop for a while. Okay? So God lets us taste the sad fruits of tyranny to motivate us to want theocracy. God was making Saul's reign distasteful. He was showing them the bitter fruits of godliness, godlessness so that he could later bless them with David's rule. By the time David became king, people were ready for him. They were totally ready. And in the same way, there is a lot of good that can and already has been coming out of Biden's tyranny and medical tyranny and media and corporate tyranny, and all of the other forms of evil in our society, what Satan intended for evil, God is working around for good. What originally seemed like small compromises that weren't that big of a deal have more and more come to their logical conclusions, and people are saying, yikes, we don't like this. I mean, even liberals are beginning to despise intersectionality and the, the wokeness that divides everybody into oppressor and oppressed. That's bifurcated Marxist way of categorizing people. Anyway, God knows how to make Goliaths fall but he won't make them fall until the remnant rises up with faith like David. Uh, he just won't. The fifth and the last thing that drove David to prayer was the legalization of an anti-Christian law order. Take a look at verse 8. The wicked prowl on every side when violence is exalted among the sons of men. This is simply giving the logical prin principle that when violence is exalted or honored, uh, by the state, by a nation, that uh, violence is going to multiply. I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? It should be no surprise to us that sexual abuse is on the rise when you've got abusive pornography that has been made legal. 
Okay, our politicians don't seem to see the connection, but it's obvious on the face of it. If evil is honored and protected, then evil will multiply. When criminals are coddled and infants are killed, we should not be surprised that the moral fabric of our nation is being torn apart. Has violence been exalted in our nation? Yes. Homosexuality is a case in point. So is abortion. They don't just tolerate it. No, they exalt it. They honor it. It's no wonder that the wicked prowl everywhere seeking their next victims. When did the poisonous flower of pornography begin to blossom? Now, it's always been there. But it became bold in seeking victims when the courts honored and protected it. According to a British committee that was recently commissioned to study uh, the problem of porn, there are 4.5 million porn sites worldwide, with more than half of them being located in America. 43% of Americans, both male and female, by the way, 43% of Americans find porn acceptable. 75% of American parents naively think that their children never have watched porn. But when those 75% had their children interviewed, the children, let's see, what is it? Uh, 53% of those children said they regularly watched porn. Parents had no idea, no idea whatsoever. The organization Enough is Enough claims that the biggest of the 4.5 million porn sites, it's Pornhub, has 33.5 billion users in 2018. Now, all of these forms of violence have been exalted in the courts as a specially protected right. They're being exalted in the classroom. And when the government itself exalts violence, the wicked lose all fear of prowling and looking for prey. So we're in an impossible situation. It's impossible for man. But what does Reformation Day call us to? It calls us to faith. It calls us to defy the Goliaths in the land, in the name of Jesus. And as you pray and as you take actions, three things should characterize your prayers and actions. First of all, faith. He says in verse 1, help, Lord. What's he asking for help for? Is he just have faith that God can help him in his devotions and have faith that God can help his personal family issues? No. You know, many people act as if God is not interested in changing culture. They have no faith that God has an interest in that. Um, But this psalm is clear. David wanted help for his nation. He was asking God, take on the transformation of a culture as your job. So he just didn't ask personal victory for a few. He wanted reformation. And if you do not believe it's God's job to transform cultures, you will not have the faith to take this psalm upon your lips you're certainly not going to take actions of faith. We need a church stirred up to believe that God's civil laws continue to apply, that Romans 13 continues to apply, that culture and politics continues to be important to him, that God is not careless about civic matters. Our help is in the Lord, even in the area of politics. And in your outlines, I've given five reasons why we can have faith to pray this way. I'll just go through them fairly quickly. First, the covenant name Yehoah. Some people um, pronounce it Yahweh. That's Lord in all capital letters. Anytime you see that in the New King James, it's Yehoah. Okay? That's his covenant name. He is in covenant with us. But the way that this name is used, it shows it's not just a personal covenant. Joshua 3, verse 13 says, Yehoah is the Lord of all the earth. All the earth. Numbers 14, 21 promises, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yehoah. 
God's covenant relationship to me personally, yes, that's very encouraging, but his covenant relationship to the earth as a whole is encouraging as well, which means, by the way, that America has broken covenant with God and God will not hold it guiltless. But we can lay hold of his covenant name. Second, verse 3 implies that God is judge of all the earth. Verse 5 says he is our protector. Verse 7 says he knows how to keep us from stumbling. These are all foundations for faith. I think it's obvious. I don't need to preach on them. But I want to park on the fifth reason for faith, the inerrancy of Scripture. Verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. In other words, there is no dross in the silver of God's Word. There's no error, no mistakes, uh, nothing bad. There should be nothing in God's Word that we would be embarrassed about, right? And yet how many people are shocked that we would want to apply biblical law to American society like early America had. <laughs> they're, they're shocked. They're just not connecting. They're embarrassed by God's law. I remember a radio show where James Dobson, somebody had brought up uh, the, the law of stone, stoning juvenile delinquents in the Old Testament, and, and he said something to the effect that um, nobody in his right mind would want to apply that nowadays. Well, I, I beg to differ. The juvenile delinquents in New York City that terrorize their parents, kill policemen, commit crimes, need to be punished with the same laws that adults are punished with. Justice should be across the board, and you're going to find, if that was the case, it would be much more effective in deterring crime than coddling these children would. If the church is to be able to make a difference in society, we cannot be embarrassed by biblical law. We have to have faith that it's pure, like silver tried in the furnace, purified seven times. There will be no reformation in the culture until the church itself once again believes this point. God's going to make the church continue to suffer until the church believes this point. But, here's my encouragement, the church will believe this point. It will. Isaiah 42 prophesies about our new covenant era, and it says, Christ will establish justice in the governments of the world, and says in verse 4, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Right? The fact that Jesus is said to not be discouraged implies there's going to be a lot of resistance to his reign and resistance to his law, but it promises Jesus will establish justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait for his law. So that's God's definition of justice in New Covenant times. And therefore, we are justified in claiming God's law in Omaha, in Nebraska, in America. What happens when we take our eyes off of God's word and onto our discouraging circumstances? Same thing that happened to Peter when he was walking on the Sea of Galilee. He was doing fine until he started basing his judgments on the waves. We need faith. When Peter took his eyes off of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and put them onto his impossibilities that he was looking around him at, he began sinking beneath the waves, right? So long as he kept his eyes fixed on Christ, he did okay. And it really does not take a majority to uh, make a difference. <clears throat> when Israel fought against Jericho, they accomplished the impossible by faith in Christ. On the other hand, when they tried to tackle the tiny little town of Ai in their own strength, they were devastatingly defeated. 
Christ is the thing that makes the difference. Our help is in the Lord, not in politics, not in money, not in education, not in numbers, not in having right connections, not in our arm of strength. It is in the Lord, and we must never forget that as we engage in politics, as we engage in uh, our culture and education, all of the things I just mentioned, and we must engage or we don't have faith either. Faith always acts. But secondly, we must have hope. We must not only have faith that God can do this, but a biblical hope that He will do this. Uh, In other words, have an optimistic eschatology. Eschatology is just a big, long word that means God's promises about our future. Okay? So it's not just an issue of can, it's an issue of will. Why would God authorize us to pray the content of verse 3 if it was not His will that this world become converted and liars cease from the land? May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. God wants us to pray precisely that in every age because he's willing to hear that in every age. But James says, you have not because you ask not. Imprecatory prayers imply that it's not God's will that evil should triumph. Otherwise, he wouldn't authorize us to pray for the wicked to be cut off. As I said earlier, I'm going to be starting uh, an imprecatory prayer group that names names, targets corporations, identifies strongholds, goes after the demonic, aggressively prays God's curses on his enemies. No one but church members of this church may join. But if you're interested in being a part of this, let Gary or me know. And if you want to start your own, I would just encourage you, uh, buy Dr. Fugate's uh, book, uh, what's it called? Biblical Imprecations, uh, The Christian's Secret Weapon. Uh, this will ground your imprecations in biblical theology, uh, where you don't go to the right hand or the left of God's law. And then you can do your own research and do your own imprecations. You don't have to be a part of our group. But my research is only going to be shared with our own prayer group for obvious reasons. And by the way, these evildoers who were cursed by David, they could be cut off from the land by getting converted. Why? Because Jesus, their substitute, if they put their faith in Christ, he was cut off from the land on our behalf, right? That's the gospel. So either way, they're cut off. But God wants them cut off. And praise God, that's our hope that they'll be cut off by getting saved, (laughs) you know, becoming Christians. That would be a wonderful thing. God promises that if two or three gather to pray anything according to his will, by faith, God will answer. Praying imprecations that the evil be cut off from the it is his will. We're just asking his will be done. Secondly, why would God authorize us to pray verse 5 if it was not his will for the righteous to ask for victory and to be preserved? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. That gives hope. He's promising to do it. Thirdly, we have hope for the future of America because God authorizes us to pray and to declare by faith the truth of verse 7. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Too many times we lack hope for the future because we've had so many failures in the past. We've had discouragements in the past. Hey, hope is not based on the past. Hope is based on the promises of God. It's not even based on what is possible. I mean, what David wrote here didn't seem possible at all. Hope is based upon the Word of God. 
There are churches around America that are beginning to make such declarations of faith, declarations of hope in the future. We can pray in faith, we can pray in hope, but if our prayers, this is the next point, if our prayers are to avoid hypocrisy, then we must not only pray from faith and from hope, but also from commitment. This is a big missing piece of the puzzle uh, in the modern church. Let me just illustrate this. The farmer who prays for a harvest without plowing and sowing and watering and doing all of his other responsibilities can pray as much as he wants, but God's not going to give him a harvest, period. It's just the way God works. He's not going to do it. But the praying of church today acts just as foolishly as the farmer who doesn't plow and plant. They just pray and then do not act. What's with that? That is not the way of David. This psalm tells us not only that our lack of action to be salt and light in America have led to this present evil time. I mean, it's our fault. We've withdrawn salt and light in America. But it also implies that renewed action can make a difference. Praying that God close down abortion clinics is not enough. There must be commitment. Commitment might look like pestering your elected representatives to quit ignoring the murder of abortion, picketing at abortion clinics, handing out tracts at abortion clinics, talking other churches into supporting end abortion now in Nebraska, sending money to Jared, taking other actions of prayer. I really appreciate the actions of faith that have been taken by the Mingonettes to try to end the vaccine tyranny. Okay, look at the actions implied in these verses. Verse 1 says that the godly bailing out have led to this sad state of affairs, but the implication is if the godly begin to be involved in holy and faithful ways, wow, we're going to see a difference. So he was certainly committed to being involved in godly. Lot, as one person, could not have made any difference in Sodom without God's help, but with God's help, the scriptures imply he could have, but he kept silent. He refused to be salt and light, and as a result, he was the one that was influenced, not the culture, and he lost his family. But contrast that with the difference that one person could have in the city of Nineveh. The entire city of Nineveh was converted. That's stunning. That's Old Covenant. We have much more basis for hope in the New Covenant. That was Old Covenant. Look at the difference that a small handful of faithful Christians were able to have in Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that they couldn't make a difference by themselves, but with God, they were a majority. Okay? And you can see the the miraculous results of their faith in culture. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes biblical religion a protected religion. That is an impossibility. Impossible, but it happened. In Daniel 4, he's converted. Nebuchadnezzar is converted, and he makes a public declaration of faith and declares Jehovah ways to be the ways of justice. That's an impossibility, but it happened. By the way, this is the explanation of why you look at Babylonian laws, and so many Babylonian laws are identical to biblical laws. Now, the liberals used to say, well, the Bible must have copied from the Babylonians. No, 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 no. God's law was written centuries before uh, Nebuchadnezzar even existed. It was the other way around. In Daniel 6, Darius makes a decree that all nations fear the God of the Bible. That was the entire empire of Persia. 
don't see the Goliaths of America as impossible. We have this tendency to think there's just no way. There's no way we could turn America into a Christian nation. No, all it takes is a faithful minority to be bold, to get involved, and huge differences can be made with God's blessing. So we need, first of all, to commit to being godly, verse 1. Second, we need to commit to glorifying God with our speech, verses 2 through 4. I mean, we can only complain to the Lord. Lord, would you please change the speech of others if we're willing to have integrity of lips, right? Otherwise, we're hypocrites in our prayers. If we lack integrity, we cannot ask for God to change the integrity of others. So there's got to be commitment on our part. Thirdly, the church needs to commit to minister to the oppressed. That's what is needed to reverse verse 5. Do we do anything on behalf of the unborn, widows, or orphans? Fourth, we must be committed to God's law order. We cannot sincerely pray against vileness that is exalted among the sons of men if we are opposed to God's law order being applied to society ourselves. You cannot pick and choose among God's commands. Sorry. And so praying this psalm logically commits us to exalting God's law in the nation. Vileness can only be defined in terms of God's law. We must be committed to putting on the opposite of verse 8. Well, let me end with three concluding thoughts. Though the wicked may triumph for a time in America, Psalm 2 reminds us they will not triumph forever. It's a prophecy of New Covenant times. They will not triumph forever. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that perilous times were to come in the last days leading up to 8070 with wickedness growing. But Paul adds in verse 9, but they will progress no further for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. And I think we can expect the same thing to be happening in America too, that there will be a tipping point where the wicked will progress no further for their folly will be manifest to all. I think actually right now people are beginning to see the folly or the irrationality of the woke culture. Even though the humanists have been triumphing against Christianity on issue after issue, it's beginning to alienate the populace and against their radical ways. You know, here's the principle. Satan tends to defeat himself on his own victories. They backfire against him. As the fire turns up on a sleeping church, church may very well in God's providence come to life and uh, perform great exploits for God. Pray that that would happen. But in any case, this psalm is not a funeral dirge for the church. It is a prayer that God change our situation around. Second, don't take a who cares attitude about our nation. Groan. You don't understand the spirit of Reformation Day if you don't groan over the evils just as the Reformers groaned over the evils of their day. Groaning means you're not satisfied with the status quo. Groan as David did over moral failures. By the way, Romans 8 says if you're praying in the spirit, you're automatically going to groan. You are going to groan in the spirit. Yearn for liberty from tyranny, as verse 5 talks about. Groaning over sin, yearning for liberty glorifies God. We cannot be indifferent to COVID tyranny or any of the other tyrannies that we've already outlined. Lastly, be aware of the vastly different worldviews that humanists and Christians have. What David rejoiced over, the humanists grieved over. What David grieved over, the humanists rejoiced over. Okay, there, you don't think there's ever going to be a peace treaty between the two. Don't try to make the Goliaths happy, <laughs> the humanists happy. Don't make a tr- peace treaty. It won't work. The lordship issue brought up in verse 4, last phrase, is really the nub of the issue. Are we Lord or is God Lord? Is there anything 
that has substituted its lordship for God's lordship. For some, the state is Lord, not God. This psalm is a call for the church to be neither pessimistic on the one side or carefree and uncaring on the other side, but to have a realistic perspective of what God needs to accomplish if America is to prosper. Pray this prayer. Identify the Goliaths of our land and defy them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word even when it hurts. We thank you, Father, that you are the God who changes us. And when we've had sins in the past, we can put those sins under the feet of King Jesus, cleansed in his blood, and move forward as new creatures in Christ uh, to be on his side, uh, be his foot soldiers, uh, fighting against the very armies that we used to be a part of. Help us, Father. Uh, to be willing uh, to be faithful soldiers of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.